welcome to the Philosophy of Psychoanalysis. The lecture you are about to listen to was created by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. This course has been made publicly available, but was recorded for a live student audience. Please enjoy. Lecture 9, The Oedipus Complex, Morality, and Gender. This lecture is the continuation of a previous episode. If you haven't listened to that, I recommend you go back and check it out before continuing. Enjoy! Okay, so the superego's got no drives, and that's a, a crucial thing, because the dynamic basis of morality is an important issue. Because if it's got no drives, as the id or ego has, why is it then that we can feel the pain of guilt? Because we certainly feel it as a pain. And I suppose what the um, psychoanalytic theory would say is that we ob obey the superego, we obey its dictates, because we we fear the loss of love of our parents. And in fact, it was the fear of the loss of the parents' esteem that was effective in setting up the superego in the first place. So the, the manner of the action of the superego echoes the manner of its coming into being, coming into formation. What the superego does, though, is it, it forms internal barriers. You can't really have a dynamic unconscious until you've got a superego. You can't really have a fully dynamic unconscious until you've got a superego, because you can't truly repress until you've got a superego. But the story goes that the ego fears punishment and represses forbidden id impulses. So the ego is doing the repressing, but it's doing that work at the behest of the superego. So the superego calls the shots. But it's only the ego that's got the dynamic power, in a sense, to oppose the powerful id impulses. So the clash is between ego and id, but it's the superego that's kind of setting them in opposition to each other in terms of morality. Now, the superego is moral, but that doesn't make it good because the ego wants you to continue to have pleasure. It wants to, you to adapt to reality so that you can survive as an individual and keep on keeping on. But the superego, all that it cares about is the moral principle. And if in fulfilling that moral principle, you die, the superego doesn't care. Okay, So it's actually not necessarily on your side in life. It's on the side of culture. It wants you to fit in with culture, even if it turns you into a nervous weakling in the process. So one of the things that anthropologists hate about Freud is that, that he sort of says that this Oedipus complex is universal, and they go, where's your evidence? You know, and, and various people like Malinowski sort of challenged Freud's notion that the Oedipus complex was universal. And, it, and look, it does seem that there are some subtle differences in the way that that people are socialized into being one gender or another and culturally. But Freud didn't think it was universal because it was genetic. He just thought that we're all born dependent on others. We're all born with tumultuous sexuality and sexual jealousy. And so, you know, the Oedipus complex just ends up playing out in various cultures. Now, the myth is quite fascinating. It operates at so many levels. Do you know the myth of Oedipus? Because I don't want to bore you. Do you know it in its detail? Cool. How many people feel that they know it? And I'll just go very, very quickly. Excellent. Yep. Could you just say what you think it's about? That would be so cool. He kills the father. Excellent. 
Yep, it's got a self-fulfilling prophecy. Cool. Anything else? He, he does end up becoming blinded. Exactly. Oedipus blinds himself when he discovered that he's killed his father and married his mother. Well done. Yep. So he's blind to something, which is a crucial bit. What else? That, that his progeny are shamed because they're incestuous products. Yeah, there would be that. There's one other crucial bit. You don't know that bit at all. Okay, then I won't tell you the myth. I'll tell you the riddle that the Sphinx poses to him, and then I'll tell you the myth, because this is a better way to tell it, I realize. Okay, so this is poor little Oedipus Rex, and he wants to get into the city, and the Sphinx is guarding the city, and that's the Sphinx. Isn't she scary? She's wonderful. Um, look at those claws near his private parts. It's dangerous stuff. And what I what I accidentally omitted from this picture is that there are bones scattered everywhere. I had to just, you know how you have to excerpt bits to get it on the slide? I accidentally left out the skulls and the bones because she's obviously eaten a few people who haven't answered her question properly. And she asks a different question of each person as psychoanalysis asks a different question of all of us. So she's a composite beast. You know, when you think of condensation, you know, she's got this sort of like the lion's claws, she's got these amazing wings, and she's a sort of fairly voluptuous, slightly queenly looking woman, etc. Here's the, here's the question she poses. What walks on two legs at morning bright, two at noon, and three at evening? What's the answer? Man, good on you. And it's because you crawl when you're a baby, you got walk two-legged when you're in your prime, and then when you're old, you've got a walking stick. Okay. But why did she ask Oedipus this question? Why would it be a really particular problem for Oedipus? He has got a sore foot. How did he get the sore foot? Do you know? Absolutely. Actually, he had a stake driven through his foot when he was left out on the mountaintop by an old servant. <clears throat> because um, Oedipus's mother, when she heard the prophecy that he would kill his father and marry his mother, uh, obviously believed that it was possible that she would desire her son. It must have struck her as a possibility. And so she took action um, to get rid of him. And so he was left for dead on the mountaintop. So the question that the Sphinx poses is precisely, can he understand the damage and harm that was done to him by his parents? because it was through his parents that he got this wounding. And so walking's a big issue for him, because he had a stake driven through his foot. So the myth is not just about the child desiring the parents. It's also about the parents realizing that there is the possibility that they could desire the child. And so the taboo incest goes both ways. And the tangle of desires is between parents and child. And it's not girl desires dad, electrocomplex, that's Jung, Freud never used the word electrocomplex, okay? It's not girl desires dad, boy desires mum. It's not that simple. It's, there are desires going in all directions in the Oedipus complex, active and passive desires, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. Okay, so the, the, what the myth says is that to truly truly become a self-aware, insightful person, you have to be able to remember the wounding that you suffered at your parents' hands. In other words, you have to re-excavate the conditions that set up your superego and go, do I really want to be a dour, Scottish, pleasureless, Calvinist person? Or would I rather go, actually, I think that's asking too much. I'd rather have a bit more fun than that. Okay. So the challenge is to remember the wounding that was suffered in the name of morality at your parents' hands or in the name of culture. Okay, so the crucial bit of today's lecture is that men and women, biologically men and women, 
negotiate the Oedipus complex differently. The path that we take through the Oedipus complex is not just related to how we feel about our parents. <laughs> what, it, what it also relates to is how we come to be positioned as one gender rather than another. Who do we identify with? If I become a slightly masculine woman, I've possibly identified with the masculine positioning in culture and with the more masculine aspects of my father and mother. Okay, And it's also about how moral you end up being. How, how readily can you renounce? Freud says not everyone can do so evenly. Okay. But the crucial bit is that the superego is born of renunciation, giving up desire, and identification, becoming like the other. And we don't just take on the attributes of the other so that we behave like them in the world. We take on the attitudes that they have towards our longings. We take on the attitudes that they have towards our longings. So we can become a very harsh judge of ourselves. Now, if we have got sexual desire for the parents, there has to be quite powerful inducement for us to give up those sexual desires, or it just won't happen, because we know the power of drives, basically. Now, the weird thing is that, according to psychoanalysis, both sexes, and I'm using sex, not gender deliberately, I mean biological sex, both sexes initially love mum. Men have to give up mum, but they don't have to give up women. So I can't have that woman, but I can search for another woman. Okay, Women have to give up mum. Not allowed to like women if you're a woman, culturally. Got to transfer your affections to your father. Okay, done that. Oh, no, not allowed to have either. Sorry. Got to give up another set of longings and look for a man like dad. So you see, the path is more tortuous for a woman because she has to give up mum, transfer to dad, okay? So she's had one Oedipus complex, what's called the negative Oedipus complex, because she likes the mother. Not allowed that. Okay, positive Oedipus complex, like dad. Nope, not allowed that, right? And so she has a much more difficult path, which is why Freud thinks women are more bisexual, less moral, all sorts of things, because we have a tougher time in acquiring morality. Also, you can threaten guys with more things. Okay? There are two inducements to give up parents as lovers for men. They can lose their parents' love if they persist with this wanton act of you know, wickedness, or they can be threatened with castration. You know, And initially the little boy thinks it's never going to happen, but then if he spies the sexual difference of the little girl, he goes, uh-oh. She hasn't got one. Oh, might be a possibility. After all, I better toe the line kind of thing. You can't threaten women with castration. Sorry. <laughs> okay. But you can threaten them with loss of love. And in fact, one of the things that I think persists in women's adult life, mental life, is the power of relationships. I don't think you have to argue strongly for that. It's pretty obvious that women are much more sociotropic, much more concerned with um, preserving relationships. So there's a big difference in the Oedipus complex proper because the girl's first love of the mother as an Oedipus complex wasn't really recognised by Freud until 1931. So the Oedipus complex proper is the girl desiring the dad and the boy desiring the mum. But what's interesting is the way that castration functions quite differently for the two sexes in that process. For instance, the little boy gives up his desire for his mother once he realises that castration is a possibility. 
So castration anxiety makes him go, okay, I'm not going to desire mum anymore. I'll uh, look for another woman and identify with dad and become a gender-identified man in the world. But for the little girl, once she realizes that she's castrated, she has a castration complex. She thinks, God, I'm lacking. There's something really important, and I haven't got it. And this is how I'm positioned in life. This is terrible. Okay, So, so it makes her move in different ways, castration. It certainly doesn't bring the Oedipus complex to an end for her. It actually starts the Oedipus complex for her. So the odd thing is that we're positioned according to biological sex, and our biological sex means that we have to follow a particularly different path to acquire morality. The boy's path is, if I consider to desire my mother, I'll be castrated, so best I find a woman to desire, another woman to desire. The girl's path, here it is. She's got what's called the negative Oedipus complex. She desires her mother. Then she gets the castration complex, which brings that desire for the mother to an end. She goes, eek, I'm castrated. That's the castration complex. God, it's not just me. Mum's castrated too. I blame her. Women are crap. I'm going to turn towards men. They're going to have what I need. And so she has this kind of negative attitude towards her own sex, which can persist into late life in all sorts of unconscious ways. Okay? So she devalues women as men devalue women, says Freud. And unfortunately, women devalue their own gender. Then she gets the Oedipus complex proper, or the positive Oedipus complex. I'll desire dad instead. I'll have a baby by dad, and preferably be a male baby, and then I'll have a penis of my own by indirect means. You can imagine what the feminists <laughs> made of this. And if you really want to see some hot writing, have a look at the International Journal of Psychoanalysis in 1926. Ah, Jean Lundell, Joan Rivière, they're all just tearing strips off Freud, and he ignores them all. He absolutely ignores them all. He's written this paper, The, Psy the Psychical Consequences of the Anatomical Distinction, putting this stuff out. Feminists just tear shreds out of him. In 1931, he writes his paper on femininity, basically restates his position, doesn't take on board anything from anybody, and goes, we must not allow ourselves to be dissuaded by the feminists, which includes Ernest Jones. So this, he is not negotiable on feminine sexuality. He's zany. Okay. So why did he call it the castration complex rather than castration anxiety? Well, it's because you can't have you can't be anxious about something that's already happened. And according to Freud, we're already born castrated as women. But girls can feel very bad about not having a fleshly appendage. And Freud says they had once recognized it as the superior counterpart of their own small and inconspicuous organ, quote unquote. This is from The Psychical Consequences of the Anatomical Distinction, 1925. Now, the little girl's reaction to the fact of her castration is a little bit different from the boy's horror at the mutilated creature. That's the only time he uses mutilated in the collected works is in regards to men's attitude to women. So the boy thinks, oh, she's mutilated, she's horrifying, it might happen to me. And, um, you know, some men get so freaked that they can't really ever find women desirable again, says Freud. Um, but she makes her decision in a flash. She's seen it, she knows without it, she's without it, and she wants to have it. This is penis envy, basically. But Freud says, look, they not only spy that they're bodily different, they recognize that all sorts of advantages accrue to someone who's got one of these. 
Okay, there's all sorts of things waiting for you. That was certainly true in my family. It's like, had I been a boy, I would have been taught how to fish and shoot and hunt and all sorts of you know, incredibly desirable things, you know. <laughs> Not. <laughs> my father actually did teach me how to shoot, and the day that I was better than him, that was it. I got no more lessons in terms of <laughs> using a rifle. So it's like, right, that's it. We were shooting cigarette butts. We weren't shooting anything else. I'll have you know. I've never killed a living thing. And well, I I, I caught a fish once, and I wept so profusely that I've never caught another fish because I didn't know how to get it off the hook and it was suffering. And You know, I would be a vegetarian if I had to kill my own food, so I'm a, a bad faith meat eater. Okay. So, the, in other words, there's all this power, there's this whole positioning waiting for the bearers of a fleshly appendage. And you don't get that positioning if you're a woman. You've got to sort of, you know, take another path. Um, so, in a sense, you know, every culture of... Every cultural epoch positions men and women differently. There's the illusion of equality, but there isn't really ever a full equality, I think you'll find. So what's really interesting, and this is what I'm starting to try and work towards in the lectures, is that there is this triadic relationship in our views that we have of ourselves. Yes, there's the biological body, but yes, there's the psychic sort of sense of self but we're also always positioned into cult in relation to culture. And the views that we have of our body are powerfully shaped by our culture. And our sense of self is certainly powerfully shaped by our culture. Don't you love the magazines? You know, oh, are these, these women getting fat or is it a baby bump? Oh, look, they're starving themselves to death. Here's all these women that look so shocking because they're too thin. It's like, oh, leave off, you know. Um, in other words, there's all these very, very powerful forces from culture. But your sense of self has got another input. And Stoller's got an amazing paper on this where he says, you know, there is this pattern of activation from within. It's like it really isn't a choice what you desire in the world. You can't freely allocate your desire. You can't decide to be heterosexual or decide to be gay. You know, you've either got those possibilities open for you as a result of your experience or not, and you may have more than one possibility, but there is something from within you that is contributing to that equation as well, and it's it's important to respect that because it causes conflict if you've got it within you and you're being told that you shouldn't have it. Okay, so when, once the girl works out that she's castrated and she's got this inferior appendage, she goes, okay, I'm going to give up masturbation because everything that I do in relation to the clitoris just reminds me of how inferior I am and I'm not going to do it anymore. And then you get someone like Roy Baumeister writing in 2004 saying, women really don't masturbate, masturbate much, they're not interested in pleasure, etc. Okay, as if we really have taken this path. But of course it's much more complex than that. Women are very dicey about self-report around these sorts of issues. Who's asking, <laughs> you know? What's good? What are going to be the findings? Where are these findings going to go, etc.? Like women are very cagey about what they're prepared to avow because they know that you have to masquerade in certain ways to be culturally acceptable, as is the case with men, but powerfully so for women. The second option is that they can develop a masculinity complex. And the third is that they can loosen their ties with their mother, which is the normal pathway for girls. Point three is where we're supposed to go. We end up not quite liking our mum and seeking a penis substitute by a child, preferably male. So you give up masturbation because it reminds you of your inferiority. You develop a masculinity complex. This is a really fascinating thing. It's a kind of disavow 
it's kind of a break with reality. It's like saying, yes, I haven't got a penis, but one day I will get one. It's almost like one day one will grow. And I love the language that Freud's used. The, a girl may refuse to accept the fact of being castration, being castrated, may harden herself. I thought that was cute. <laughs> in the conviction that she does possess a penis and may subsequently be compelled to behave as though she were a man. Joan Riviere picks this up in 1926 and says, women is the site of difference, masquerade, and loss. Those are all the options that we've got. We're different. We have to masquerade as though we've got a penis, and in fact, we're just the site of loss and absence and lack. They're not great options. They're not great options as a, a female identity. And so when you develop a masculinity complex, there's a suggestion that you that's such a wound to your narcissism that you develop, like a scar, a sense of inferiority. And in Lynn Micklebrown's book, Meeting at the Crossroads, why is that a significant title, Meeting at the Crossroads, in terms of the Oedipus Smith? What happened at the crossroads? Yeah, he killed his father at the crossroads. So this beautiful book, Meeting at the Crossroads, is actually a really beautiful qualitative study of little girls' self-esteem and why it takes such a plummeting, as it seems to, when women hit puberty. And Freud would say that it's a reawakening of the, in, the reminder of your biological inferiority. So it's, it's big stuff. And the third option, disparaging women, loosening your ties to uh, the mother, Freud says she realises that the lack's not a personal punishment, that the sexual character is a universal one, and she begins to share the contempt felt by men for a sex which is lesser in so important a respect. Yeah, contempt is actually seeing the other as shame-worthy. Contempt is kind of like, is um, it's a shame-affiliated emotion. So one is contemptuous towards others that one sees as, inferior and shame. So a Machiavellian, for instance, feels contempt to the rest of us because we're deluded and we're vain and we think we're okay. So contempt's an incredibly powerful shame, disgust. Yeah, it's around disgust, dismell. Yeah, powerful word. Okay, so the girl sees her mum as, as being the source of all of these difficulties. And it, it can be quite lingering these sorts of effects. Like, for instance, when I was giving that talk at the Pacific Women in Psychology Conference, which was a women-only conference, I was shocked to find within myself an assumption that the intellectual standard of the conference might not be so high because we would all just get together and drink champagne and things like that. We did. <laughs> but what was amazing was we would have papers until about 7 o'clock at night and then go to hot pools and drink champagne. and like the, It was an incredibly rigorous, on-the-money, high-standard conference. And I was appalled to find within myself the unconscious assumption that we would just goof off because the boys weren't there. Yeah, yeah. well, look, that is such a fantastic question, and Deborah Lutnitz does a whole lot of work around trans transgender. She's a, um, a psychoanalyst who's fascinated by this sort of stuff. A transgender person is someone who really believes that their biological sex is the wrong sex or that they have been so indeterminate in the biological contributions of their body that they actually could be either sex. Well, Freud would say, Freud would say, not I, but I imagine there's something of that, that there is such an identification with the female position, with the feminine positioning in culture, 
that your bodily appendage just doesn't fit with who you believe yourself to be. And in fact, if you look at the transcripts of people who really want to have gender reassignment, um, and there's a few people in Sydney who are experts in this area, the transcripts are something like, I'm a woman, I've just got this growth. And it's, it's an alien thing to them. It's not an avowed or valued possession at all. Really great question. But the thing that psychoanalysis shows is that biological sex, gender identity, and erotic object preference are three totally separate things, and they can all be going in strange directions. Okay. Now, one of the reasons that I find this stuff fascinating is that because women have got a, a negative and a positive Oedipus complex, separating out from their mum is much, much harder than it is for boys. And that's why the mother mother daughter relations can be so problematic. I know, um, you know, my partner says that when he first started going out with women, what he had to get used to was they're going to talk about their mother, and I'm going to have to pretend to be interested. <laughs> that was gorgeous in its honesty. It's like pretend to be interested. <laughs> it's like, aren't you fascinated? <laughs> anyway, so uh, there is this notion that. You know, our being is never so fused, confused with our father as it is with our mother. Um, and it is a real issue to separate out from your mother if you're a woman. Look, it's seen as somewhat simple for boys. The message is just be other than mother. And all the developmental literature suggests little boys get that message really fast. They'll cross the floor and identify with women if in the experimental situation the women have got all the power. But apart from that, they won't have a bar of anything that's kind of girly, basically. So, But for girls, the person that you love, the person that you identify with, the person that has to accord you your gender identity is all of a bundle. So it is kind of fused, confused. If you think about it, women have got two zones to their sexuality in a way. And Freud wrongly suggested that we had to move from the clitoris to the vagina to be mature sexual women. One woman was so convinced by his argument, she got her clitoris surgically distanced from her vagina because she felt that she couldn't, she hadn't quite made the transition. Okay. Oh, anyway. <laughs> so both men and women are bonded to the mother at first. And by bonds, I mean you love her, you desire her, but also you identify with her. Men are able to retain their zone. They don't have to change from the penis to the penis. Okay? They keep that. But their love object has to change. They don't desire mum, but they can desire someone like mum. But their identification is clear. They don't identify with mum. They love women, identify with men, you see, it's kind of separate, and they don't have to shift zones. So it's a much less tangled path to normal sexuality or normative sexuality for men. The mother's not an object of identification, and men often take this way too far. So they really repudiate anything that's, that's feminine, even to the point of not being able to speak about feelings sometimes. Okay. And, you know, girl cooties and think, ooh, girl cooties, don't want to go near them kind of thing. The task of the woman, the woman's got to change both zone and love object. She's got to change from clitoris to vagina. She's got to change from loving a woman to loving a man. 
But at the level of identification, she's got to retain that bond with the mother. So she can't totally give up on the mother in this sense. Now, the, I'm now going to be a bit tough on Freud, and rightly so, I'm afraid, because I think there's a few blind spots. Now, this title is not mine. This comes from a beautiful book by Lucy Rigorai, um, which is called That Sex Which Is Not One. I think that's right. Yes, I think that's right. But this is the chapter called A Blind Spot in the Old Dream of Symmetry. And she suggests that the difficulty with Freud is that he said, Men and women are, are the same. I'm really just going to talk about men. Only, oh, most of my clients are women. But, oh, well, that doesn't matter. Women are just like men, only they're lacking in some sort of way. So it's kind of like the penis is A and women are just not A. They haven't got the penis. It's not like women, women have got, you know, a clitoris and a vagina, which is A, and men have got the penis, which is B. He wasn't really into sort of sexual dimorphism and the significance of that. And the weird thing is that the different sexual organs are apparent even to children. Kids work out very quickly that it's only mummies that can have babies, for instance. Now, Freud was aware that he was quite deficient in his theorizing around women, but it didn't make him more open-minded. It made him more closed-minded, which is quite common. If you feel a bit defensive, you're often not quite prepared to take a point. And he really didn't take a point much in regards to his views on women in the course of his life, alas. He saw women as the dark continent. He linked to development very closely to men. And only really in 1931, he realized that he had missed something quite vital. He had missed the significance of the pre-Oedipal years and her earlier Oedipus complex where she desires her mother. And he really, really missed that. He saw the clitoris as an inferior version of the penis and biology doesn't really hold that to be true, I'm afraid. He, he thought that, that women as castrated man powerfully shaped men's views of women. And look, this has sort of got a bit going for it because there is a kind of unconscious presumption of inferiority sometimes in, you know, culture. Um, but he, he's got two reactions for men to seeing women's castration, horror and triumphant contempt. It's not a great picture for, you know, good relationships between the genders, is it? Toral Moy says that that horror and the extremity of that contempt why would you? He, she's sort of saying it's the projection, projection outwards of men's fear of castration, that it's a defense against this terrible fear. Men are, sorry, women are seen as inferior when in fact they're only different. They're just different. They can do different stuff. And where pleasure is concerned, neurologically, size doesn't matter. The clitoris is as capable of pleasurable sensation as the penis. It's only that it's less visible but, you know, people like Lacan say, but we live in a specular economy where it's all about the gaze. It's all about what can be seen. It's like, prove it, show me, you know. And so the visible actually does sort of matter in some ways. So, but Freud said the little girl had absolutely no awareness that she had a vagina. So she's got no compensation for her lack. She's, it's not like, oh, well, he's got that, but I've got something else that's useful. And there was actually contrary evidence even at the time that Freud was writing, Karen Horney, who was also an analyst, said women analysands were quite aware as a child of having positive features that made them a woman. It wasn't just that they lacked. They had something else and they knew they had something else. 
And some little girls would envy the mother the capacity to bear children and breastfeed. So, you know, from an early age, this, these were the issues that the kids were um, noticing and bringing later into analysis. But Freud saw women as sexually passive. Now, he means that in quite a technical way. What passive sexuality is for Freud is when the organ of the body of another is introduced into your body. That is passive sexuality. When the organ of a body of, of the body of another is introduced into your body, is, that's passive. Okay? But when you actively put part of your body into the body of another, that's active sexuality. So breastfeeding is active sexuality, because Freud's got a diverse view of sexuality, but he never really talks about women having any kind of active sexuality in relation to their children, for instance. So he ends up thinking that women are morally different, that they're less capable of sublimation, and sublimating the sex drive is what it takes to be a good contributor to culture. He thought they were less able to love because they had this kind of shamed contempt towards themselves. They just wanted to be loved. And he thought that they were more influenced by their emotions in their moral decisions. Now, that ends up being kind of true, the last one. Um, yeah, that, that's a beautiful line of argument. Isn't the, what the person was saying was, um, isn't it little boys who are sort of like debarred from, you know, being able to sort of give birth, have children, just start their own family, so they have to go away and do something completely different? Is that the sort of part of it? Yes, fascinating. You would love the 1926 Journal of Psychoanalysis, exactly what everybody's saying. One person says, you know, women can leave um, something that carries on their existence in the form of a child, and um, men have to sort of build bridges and buildings and paint and write sonatas and all this kind of stuff. Is yeah. so there's all there's all this, you know. I I I I love the debate. I think it's fantastic, and I, I think the truth is somewhere in between that I think we, we each envy aspects of the other. And depending on how much that matters to us, we'll position ourselves in terms of our gender identity. And I think that's what's so neat, is that you actually do have some freedom in how you position yourself. It's now not inevitable that you have children or don't, etc. Do I think Freud was a misogynist? That's a really good question. I don't think he thought he was. I think he really loved women, but I think he accidentally had a fairly disparaging view of women. Did he love them so much that it turned into hate? I think he was a big patriarch, and I think he really wanted to contribute to culture, and I think he was very disappointed in marriage, as that, you know, civilized sexual morality and modern nervous illness showed. Um, and I know that he had an affair with his wife's sister and was absolutely drawn to women, but he was drawn to men very powerfully sexually as well, you know. So I don't know, but yes, I do get the feeling he didn't rate us highly. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true, which is why I think it's very important to resist this feature of his theorizing, because I think it's, it's actually quite damaging. You've got wonderful people like Juliet Mitchell who say, Freud is not arguing for the patriarchy, he's just giving us an analysis of the patriarchy. But he's got his own blind spots to such an extent that I think he's accidentally getting advantages by being on the side of the patriarchy, in a sense. So, yeah, good questions and favourite topic of mine. Okay, the reason I'm giving you this huge quotation is because 
this is one of the most pivotal about the differences in morality between the genders, and everybody cites it, so here it is. And it also gives you a sense of the charisma of Freud's writing, because he's a cagey little devil when he writes. It's kind of like, I cannot evade the notion, like he really doesn't want to say this, though I hesitate to give it expression, I really don't want to say this, that for women, the level of what is ethically normal is different from what it is in men. Their superego is never so inexorable, in other words, it will have its way no matter what, so impersonal, so independent of its emotional origins, as we require it to be in men. So he's not saying men live up to it, he's saying as we require it, we've got higher standards for men, and women don't live up to the standards we have for men. Men don't either, but he's not saying that. Character traits which critics of every epoch, and the critics of every epoch unfortunately do tend to be men, have brought up against women that they show less sense of justice, that they're less ready to submit to the great exigencies of life, that they're more influenced in their judgments by feelings of affection or hostility. All of these would be amply accounted for by the modification in the formation of their superego, which we've inferred above. So that's what today's lecture is all about. In other words, he says women end up less moral than men for all of the reasons I've just given you. And so we can't expect as much of them. Georg Simmel says, and this is, I think, from a, a beautiful paper, 1926, International Journal of Psychoanalysis, Karen Horney, citing Simmel. She says, and he's a sociologist, he says, conceptions of women have got less to do with what women are actually like than they have to do with male fears and disappointments. Men in a male-dominated society, he says, often falsely but successfully pass off their subjective experience as objective truth. And so Simmel is saying that's what Freud is doing here about the inferiority of women and women being less moral. And I remember when I was working in five New South Wales prisons and I had access to an enormous database and I realised that there were 40 men in prison for every one woman. And I'm reading this stuff at that time and I'm going... How can we say that women are less moral than men? Unless you run the line that it's the superego that causes crime. You know, some sort of aggression-saturated superego that causes crime and violence, which, you know, who knows, that may be it. Yeah, I think so. And the, the suggestion was, just for the people that aren't here, that the male superego is kind of diminished and reduced because they're other than mother and they've severed from within themselves the female identification in, in the formation of the superego, I, I would agree with, with no, that, absolutely. And so you, with, yeah, and within psychology, you've got Kohlberg's theory of moral development, where an ethics of care, where you care about relationships, is level four, and level six is where you care about the abstract principle of morality, and not surprisingly, women end up not getting much past level four. So it looks like they are inferior, whereas Carol Gilligan comes in and says, well, actually, they've got a different morality. They've got an ethics of care. And that led to a whole philosophical movement. Yeah, you had a question up there. If I were to ask you a question in exam, why does Freud say women are less moral? Well, within his framework, it's quite easy to give the answer. What brings to an end the longings for the parents is inadequate for the women because all they can do is fear loss of love, whereas boys can fear castration plus loss of love. So it all hinges on castration. And it was really funny. I've got to tell you, this is absolutely true. I was giving a paper in November of last year on the notion of the uncanny to a whole bunch of psychoanalysts. And um, I was talking about, you know, the fear of death 
being a very powerful motivation for religion because I'm really interested in mysticism and religion. I write about that stuff. And this analyst said to me, oh, you have got it wrong, he says. <laughs> he says, we don't fear death, we fear castration. <laughs> and I was like, sorry, oh, <laughs> you know. Well, you, and I said to him, you know, quite honestly, but you can't threaten me with it, I'm afraid, you know, because of course, in a sense, he was. He was saying, oh, your your argument is all wrong. And I'm going, my argument's not wrong. If you look at early Freud, he's saying all this stuff about fear of death and I can back it, you know. But it was this fabulous moment where this Laconian analyst still absolutely sees castration as pivotal in inserting you into culture as a subject, in a sense. It's what makes you honor culture is that you know your place. And I was manifestly not quite knowing my place in that moment. Okay. So the girl can only fear the, the loss of love. And that's not enough. You think about it. You've got this kind of these urges and these impulses and these drives and these ids. And all you're threatening them with is not castration but loss of love. Well, she's not going to give up her bisexual longings to that extent. Because you haven't got the power to do so. You haven't got the power to truly socialize her. And so women, he suggests, have a differently formed superego, but it quite quickly becomes an inferior superego. So the threat of loss of love, though, does end up being stuff that we care about. I, I do think this is true. I think we are really socialized to absolutely put around our needs a second and to you know be concerned about sustaining relationships and others. And so it's only the loss of love that can make us a creature of culture, which makes us moral, anxious, guilty, and to some degree capable of sublimation, but Freud says to a lesser extent. Now, your argument, I'm sorry I don't know your name, would be we don't need to sublimate because we can create something that carries on our identity without having to create bridges and sonatas. We can do it more directly, so we don't need so much sublimation. It's not that we're incapable of it, it's that women don't need it quite so much. I don't know what you think. But Freud thinks we're, we're unable to sublimate, and he thinks we have a tendency towards perversion. And I love it. This is directly quoting. If shown the way, he says. And I'm going, hmm, who's showing the way, says Doris? By whom? You know, like, because if someone's showing you the way, who's the perverse one really? Okay. So Freud's views of women, just summarizing really quickly, they're incapable of really loving. They only wish to be loved narcissistically. They've got intellectual difficulties, he says. And Catherine Millot, who's a quite a famous analyst, she says, women are just rather too matter-of-fact for Freud. And Freud says women's intellect is that of soup with dumplings for logic. <laughs> I know. So I suppose your question stands, was Freud a misogynist? I'm... <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm, I must say it's my least favorite aspect of his theory, even though I find immensely useful some of the components of his theory. Thank you so much for your attention. That was Lecture 9 of Philosophy of Psychoanalysis, presented by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. The theme song to the show was created by Rose Mackenzie peterson The producer is myself, Nina McElwain. Thanks to Andrew Jeeves and John Sutton. Speak soon. Mm-hmm.